we stand on the unceded lands of the Kuli Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples, custodians of the lands on which we work, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, always will be Aboriginal land. When a black woman or a black man stands up and says, you know, I've been called this, I've been called that, we sit back and we dissociate ourselves from that because that's not me, I'm a nice person, I can't be racist. But we don't want a lot of you because one of you or two of you is okay. But then when we get a lot of you, it's like a threat and we feel threatened. And when we feel threatened, we say that's enough or we start blaming. Welcome back to Incuriosity Complex. The theme that we're working on is called Nice Black Aussies. So basically, first time here listening to us, welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been tremendous having all the listeners. We were planning on a week to do this on a weekly basis, but we've moved to a fortnightly basis now. But just to remind the ones, uh, some of you have listened to the previous two episodes and just would like a refresher, I introduced you to Pony and... Uh, she's uh, really bit just a joy to listen to, really. Um, so Pony will continue listening to her and not as much maybe in this coming episode. So we'll be pairing back and slowly introducing new interviewees. Yeah, so we've met Pony and she has walked us through the organization of the African Music and Culture Festival there's a bit of frustrations that she's expressed about the organizing of the festival and we've also stumbled across a few of the attendees at the festival i've had a few conversations or interviews that i've played back during those encounters with them i've also said the scene of the fed square i think that's important so many of the listeners will not be familiar with what this fed square is about and what big of a deal it is. So I had to spend a little bit of time to introduce that Fed Square to them. And now that we have that scene set, we are now meandering. We've now, we have our bearings and now we are getting started to explore the festival. And as we explore the festival, uh, we'll slowly feed that curiosity that is born out of someone just stumbling into a square or a place and almost like a child walking into a maze. Chapter 2. So at the festival, a new category showcasing films was added to the program's lineup. On a patch of artificial grass, I sat down, joining an absorbed audience. Cinema in its current form is a fairly recent import to African storytelling modes. Instead, it is plays that serve the entertaining. These plays are staged for many theatre goers in African towns and villages, and that creative force has quickly transformed to screenplay. The late Senegalese Ousmane Sembene has left his mark as Africa's giant of filmmaking. Sembene tackled and satirically portrayed some of Africa's prickliest subjects beginning in 1963. And concluding with his last feature on female genital mutilation. Simbene, who began as a novelist, realized that effective storytelling in order for it to reach a large audience, 
hindered by low literacy levels would really be difficult if he relied on books. In Nollywood, a Nigerian film industry sprang up in the 90s and it now releases richly produced feature films and TV shows. And out of that, a crop of African film producers, actors and directors emerged. They are now stewards in tackling subjects of direct concern to Africans. For this evening, images of turmoil and grief beamed off the enormous screen, but viewers remained still. The documentary was Ferguson Rises, directed by a Nigerian. It recounts events leading up to the police cutting short the life of a black 18-year-old, Michael Brown. And then the protests sweep across the city, effectively paralyzing Ferguson, Missouri. The grief captured by the film transfers to the audience. And almost on cue, officers on patrol from the local Victoria police were walking past. And their backdrop was the images decrying police treatment against black people. A few feet from me, a father, perhaps with origins from the Horn of Africa, was seated with his six or seven-year-old son. He seemed contemplative of this mournful moment, the helplessness of the plight of black boys in America. His restless and fidgety son next to him fiddled with an iPhone. The evening's overall proceedings were of little concern to this little boy. Can we go after this? The son asked, meaning after the film. But the father was having none of that. The biggest act of the evening was still hours away, and no level of acting up was going to remove the dad from these festivities until the night's biggest act. Now, black American boys receive stern parental instructions of how to behave in public or interact with the police to avoid being gunned down. Likely the stakes of black adolescents in Australia are not wholly similar to those of their American counterparts. Police interactions almost never sink to levels of black fatalities. Still, the American tragedies do cast a shadow long enough to fall on Africans in Australia. That and a baked-in history of traumatic encounters of families fleeing police states in Africa. When the movie ended, the Nigerian director and Michael Brown's father took seats on stage for a fireside chat. Michael Brown Sr. was answering questions and in a sense promoting a movie of his deceased son. The mood grew poignant from the questioning because the backdrop to the questions was trauma. One of the Q&A moderators and master of ceremony is Stephen. He himself is an actor who, among several roles, has been casted as a South Sudanese refugee in plight. Trained as a lawyer, for him, that career has taken a back seat to concentrate on a growing stream of work in TV roles, including Netflix. Stephen and his co-host are firing off questions. As a viewer, you can't help remarking that this treatment is like witnessing the slow introduction of pain from the safety of a one-way mirror. Peering into this exchange, the death of his son is our lens. We navigate the depths of Michael Brown Sr.'s agony. We justify this exhumation, hopeful for a universal lesson to come from a father's profound grief. And in this Q&A exchange, it is reasonable to imagine that memories of Stephen's own late father are starred 
What a sad oddness that both of their losses should occur in 2014. As a last-born baby, the world that Stephen was born into was that of loss. Normalcy's safety and quietude wobbled as Russian-made fighter jets rolled in the sky. The civil war in South Sudan was tearing through Juba. A father gathers his family and makes a run for exile. He leaves behind material possessions, and with a six-month-old baby, the family joins other families outrunning the marauding army. When Nomosi returns to the Tongans, it is because they are now refugees in Kibera, one of the largest slums situated in Kenya. These days, however, when Stephen recounts his Kibera upbringing, the cackle in his voice betrays his own disbelief of his own fortunes. But he is also mindful of the derision and microaggressions he continues to outrun just to get to this point. For African migrants, one of the lines directed to them is that, on balance, such microaggressions pale in comparison to those civil war atrocities left behind, as if one should forgive or overlook racism in service of asylum protections that comes with it. Accused of overplaying their victimhood, undercurrents of racism gain momentum and course into institutions and neighborhoods. Once in a while, an incident ignites these undercurrents. At this exact venue in 2016, a different festival altogether was underway. What ignited that face-off is unclear, but several youth groups traded provocations and when things got unruly, a heavy-handed police force deployed. Are you able to know or your version of what happened in 2016? With the guy coming up on the stage? No, the Mumba piece of how things uh, went south. How things escalated? Yeah. Um... Maybe 12 of, 12th of March, I think it was. So, it was just too... The thing is, that day they arrested 25, at least 25 young people, mm. right? Mm. Not just from uh, African descent. Mm. Pacifica, mm. Vietnamese, mm. all that. These supposed gang wars that these young people have, you know, these fake gangs that they form... In their own heads, you know, yeah. these young people. Yeah, yeah. You call yourself bros or you call yourself whatever it We've is. We've all been there. We've all been there. Yeah. You know, uh, this sense of belonging. Correct. So now they, they, they were in disagreement with the South Sudanese boys, mm. right? And where were the South Sudanese boys? Coming to the festival, mm. to Mumba, like everybody else. Mm. So when you use Messenger and all the stuff to Mr. Joe, I've seen these people over here, here. Mm. Everyone converge in the same place. Mm. What happens? A big fight ensues. Mm. And so they arrested them, 25 of them. Mm. But it was the way it was reported. The way it was reported was just South Sudanese. Mm. They didn't report the Pacifica, they didn't report the Vietnamese, they didn't report the Australians or anything of that sort. Which, by the way, I don't have a problem okay. with because I know that's just the media, mm. you know, in the way it operates. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Stanley Cohen and with, with this concept of moral panic, no. you know, where an episode or a group of people are seen as a threat to society. In March, Leah and her husband Gavin were asleep when four teenagers broke down their back door. 
I just remember just yelling and just screaming at us to just shut up and just give us money and and Gavin got out of the bed and um, physically pushed we had two of them in the room and he got up and physically pushed um, them out and sh shut the bedroom door on them he's then grabbed a baseball bat from underneath the bed at which point a hammer's come through the bedroom door multiple times of them trying to get in with us, with literally our entire body weight on the door, trying to prevent them from getting to us. Home security cameras captured Gavin chasing the young men out the front, but he couldn't stop them stealing both their cars. It's, it's too traumatising for me to go back there and remember it. I don't know how they can say that the crime rate is falling because everyone, like everyone I know doesn't, nobody feels safe. The teenagers, described as being of African appearance, are still on the run. Every time I see a black person down the street or just anywhere, it's like a trigger. Before all of this happened, I wasn't scared of black people or people of colour or whatever, but now it's like I can't even, like, face someone in a store that's black because of what's happened to me. And I think that's really unfair. It shouldn't be like that. It's not... It's not them, like, they haven't done anything wrong to me, but I can't help but associate that night with them, and that's what's really unfair. And for you to be considered moral panic, obviously, that the media runs with it, and then you find, you know, the police or the authorities become heavy-handed, mm. and you have very strict laws that are formed, you know, knee-jerk reactions. Mm. To, to search effects, you mm. know. I don't even remember that young man. Uh, is it Corey? You know, the one who threw a party in Narry Ward? It was like um, 500 young people came to that party. The Australian guy. Young Australian guy. When, when did this happen? <sighs> a while back. Mm. In Melbourne? Yeah. yeah. I've probably been in Melbourne for two, three years now. Ah, yeah. no, maybe this was like 10 years ago. Okay. This guy just put on his Facebook. Yeah. You know, party at my house because his parents had gone away. Oh, even in Sydney, I think I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. With the yellow glasses, yeah, you yeah, remember, yeah. Corey? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Business. A teenager holds an alcohol-fueled party for hundreds of kids while his unsuspecting parents are on holiday. 16-year-old Corey Worthington is now facing not only the wrath of mum and dad, but a $20,000 fine from police. <laughs> but this kid, this kid changed the whole yeah. landscape of, of things. Do you know how many things were how many uh, laws were introduced because of him? The only question that I can think to ask is, what were you thinking? 
Um, I wasn't really. Did your parents say you could have a party? Um, no. So they didn't. why did you? Um, I don't know, it was just a get-together with a couple mates at first and then we thought we might as well just have a bit of a party and then it sort of just got out of hand and, yeah. Well, 500 people turned up, the air wing of the police force, the dog squad, your neighbours' cars were being destroyed. What have your uh, parents had to say, Corey? Um, I haven't really talked to them because every time they call, I don't answer. Because, yeah, they probably try to kill me. Are you sorry? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. You don't sound very sorry. Well, I've already, I've already offered like, to say sorry to them and stuff when I see them, so I will say sorry now for everything that happened. Why don't you take your glasses off so we can see you and then apologise mm. to your neighbours for frightening nah. them? Nah, I'll leave these on. Nah, I like them. Accept responsibility, take off those glasses and apologise to everybody that you frightened, to the police who were forced to retreat and whose cars have been damaged, and to the community who have had to pay for this. Take, your, take off your I'll, glasses and apologise to us. I'll say sorry, but I'm not taking off my glasses. Why not? Because they're famous. Because your glasses are famous. Yeah. Why are your glasses famous? I know, everyone likes them, so I know I'm not taking them off. You're pretty happy with the way you look and the attitude you've got, are you? Yeah, my parents aren't, but I am. OK, Corey, we've got to wrap this up, but what would you say to other kids who were thinking of partying when their parents are out of town? Get me to do it for you. Not don't do yeah. it. Nah. Get me to do it for you. Best party ever so far. That's what everyone's been saying, so... Well, we've got to go, but I suggest you go away and uh, take a good, long, hard look at yourself. I have. Everyone has. They love it. There's a whole minister who was appointed because of that one party. You know, how, how many programs were introduced into school so that we can know how to party safely because of this one child? Right just throwing a party. Like, this is just something that we got out of hand. Right. It ain't anything that we need to change the whole... Right, law. ..the law about. Frame. Which, yeah. We don't got to do that. No. Same thing with this South Sudanese thing. It's how I feel. Mm -hmm. The same reaction to that party. You have had 25 young people, mm. you know, from different varying communities who have converged into the city where there is a large crowd of people enjoying themselves. Mm. Okay. They happen to misbehave, mm. you know, and you've got them. Mm. Why make it difficult for the rest mm. of the community? So now you've painted, because of these 25 young people, you have painted and persecuted a whole continent. We just need to call it for what it is, it's African gang violence. African gangs running riots, terrorising, robbing, wreaking havoc. You know, people are scared to go out to restaurants at the night time because they're followed home by these gangs.
nonetheless, the African community, the wider Australian community, and the Victoria Police, all three parties decry the 2016 violent incident, which implies that all factions agree that fostering neighborliness would be the desired outcome. What's puzzling, however, is that even though all factions, that is the Africans, the Aussies, and the police, have the same goal of neighborliness, somehow they all take paths that contradict achieving this desired goal. Is it because the African community, the wider Australia community, and the police all have different notions of what neighborliness is, and that those diverging notions create tensions or even amplify them instead of deeming or resolving those tensions? Wouldn't the prudent thing be, in order to resolve these tensions, that all three parties understand all each other's points of view? In this case, Victoria Police, the African community, and the white community, so that you end up with a holistic method of how you snip out the problem. Wouldn't that be the solution to take? Because now the status quo is you are visible, therefore you are terrifying. That is the status quo. You Africans are visible and therefore you are terrifying, which is bias. The other one is that you are terrifying because you are visible. The reason I am ter- the reason you are d- terrifying is because you stand out. When you stand out, you are terrifying. Your visibility is what is terrifying, and that's stereotyping. Or, if we Africans are invisible, we will no longer be terrifying. In other words, dim your visibility. Try to figure out how to, to dim it. Try to whitewash it. Conform. That is conformity. If you conform, then you're not terrifying. And you know what that leads us to? Is this runaway force where the Africans are saying, I can't make myself invisible. Neither do I want to. So I might as well become terrifying. And no one wants that. No one, nobody wants that option. You just, you cannot live with that option. Okay, we've listened to this clip two seconds ago, but I want to play it again. Let's replay it and refresh our memory. And it's from uh, Four Corners, uh, an Australian investigative television program, uh, for those of you who do not know what Four Corners is. And we will dissect it right after we've listened to it. Okay. time I see a black person down the street or just anywhere it's like a trigger before all of this happened I wasn't scared of black people or people of color or whatever but now it's like I can't even 
like face someone in a store that's black because of what's happened to me. And I think that's really unfair. It shouldn't be like that. Let's let's try to unpack that clip here, because to an untrained ear, most of that stuff can just you know fly by your head without noticing what's in there. But okay, so that lady describes a pack of marauding Africans who just pick a house and just go and ravage and ransack and rob them, and then that traumatizes her. That you know, okay. So if we just stop the Crime, wrong. And then she steps us into this traumatic feeling that she has, which is when she goes out in public and she sees black people, all she sees is terror. Now, I I can't even think of, you know, like this is like some Donald Trump shit, right? Like you, you can't just go and blame an entire race because of something that happened on a particular incident. The shit countries, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm laughing, but it's not funny, which is making blanket statements as calling African countries shit countries or whatever he said. But back to this lady. So she gets, terror, she gets robbed and then she is so traumatized that that trauma is justified into her making... I don't know, inhabiting this blanket feeling that all black people are just, I don't know, just marauding thieves or, you know, criminals. And she says it on record. On the record, she says it. Now, that would be a problem on its own if it wasn't followed by what follows, which is her trying to whitewash the shit statement that she just said by saying that she now feels so bad that she has to feel that way. And what does she do? She, she accompanies that statement with tears, with this sort of crackling, emotional, I don't know, crying voice. And I have to be honest with you. When I listen to that, that, that voice of hers cracking into tears, it washes away that immediate preceding statement, which is that she is terrified of all the black people. That immediate statement, that preceding statement, gone, vaporized in my head. So she has done that little dance where she's telling you how she feels about an entire race, and she realizes that whether she realizes or not, doesn't realize, who, who even knows. But she justifies that feeling, that blanket feeling, that stereotype with her emotional crackling, her emotional meltdown. And when she does that, you and I forgive the preceding statement. You just say, no, 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 no. This poor girl, this poor lady, no one should have to go through that. And therefore, those tears, they just wipe away what she just immediately said. But I actually was lucky to... To come across uh, it, th- that's the, the thing I like about Melbourne as a city is that, yeah, and I've mentioned this in the previous uh, episode that they, people they will they'll tell you exactly how if they see some prejudice they don't give it oxygen they'll come after it white people especially I've come across countless white people who just will not put up with that 
And the way they do it is they expose, they will look at your fakeness and they'll expose you. And so I, th I thought this would be a good time. I didn't think this would be a good time, but I'm just going to go ahead and play uh, uh, one of the a clip of a conversation that I had with Georgia, where she is. Now I've, I've heard this some someplace else where um, people were, it was a docu someone was describing white women tears, and I at the time I don't think I understood it, but Georgia helped me understand how this works. I'm gonna play that clip of my conversation with Georgia, the real pith conversation between me and Georgia is much farther down the road, but this clip is worth bringing in right now. It's, as part of white fragility, yeah. this is the whole thing about multiculturalism. We love multiculturalism as long as you do it our way. So when a black woman or a black man stands up and says, you know, I've been called this, I've been called that. We sit back and we dissociate ourselves from that because that's not me. I'm a nice person. I can't be racist. But we don't want a lot of you because one of you or two of you is okay. But then when we get a lot of you, it's like a threat and we feel threatened. And when we feel threatened, we say that's enough or we start blaming. It's not about us. It's about you. So that was when we had the whole gang thing. We had schools where white women teachers would say, I don't want more than two or three black kids together because I feel threatened. Mm. So we go back to that history of white women, you know, the whole, it's called white women's tears where we cry and we say, we're feeling bad, we're feeling threatened, oh my God. And then you have to comfort us. There's a documentary about that, isn't there? Really? Yeah, deconstructing whiteness, I think. But I've seen it actually happening right. where white women teachers would say this and say, I don't want more than four or five kids together, but four or five white kids together is not threatening, but four or five black kids are. Yeah. So, you know, we've got this, we don't want a lot of you, and then we don't want a lot of you together as a group, because that is threatening. Okay, so back to this bitterness directed towards African Australians because of their criminality because of their I don't know because of these terrorizing traps their inclination their proclivities to crime what that bitterness does is that it generates this community-wide feeling or expression or legitimacy to for people to say you know why don't they just go back to where they came from yeah just go back to where you came from because a, you don't want to conform and you even seem to, you, you're causing problems here. You, so you can't conform, you're indulging in crime and you're also complaining that you have a shit deal here compared to where you came from. Why don't you just pack it up and go home, right? That is something that gets a lot of air, gets a lot of oxygen. But what we need to remember is that it seems like we're playing a game that's been played in many other countries and it doesn't work. Those countries have realized it doesn't work. The UK has played that same game. The Americans have played that same game where they retreat into, I don't know, suburbs and just leave the towns alone and start labeling certain races as urban. So they leave them 
in the cities and they go to their rural areas or their suburbia. And yeah, what well, that's essentially a white flight, but it doesn't work. It never works. And I don't think we have the time to get into that right now, but it doesn't work. So because retreating or leaving your urban areas to go to the suburbia doesn't work, your next move is to peddle the idea that they should go back to where they came from. But that is also not something that works because uh, broadly speaking, you have three categories of people that are here, right? So let's just start with the, uh, I don't know, like there's obviously, uh, this is a settler country that was created out of settlers coming here from overseas and that included blacks. So those blacks are just as entitled to the whites that came on the same ships. So let's put those aside. That's one category. Category B is the ones that Australia as a country seeking to be competitive in the world economy stage. We need certain jobs to be filled. And those might be in education. They might be in healthcare. They might be in engineering, even nursing homes. And you will need to fill those jobs by bringing other migrants to fill those jobs. Again, the U.S. does it, Canada does it, the U.K. does it. So that's not new. So that's the second category. And to me, it seems like that Australia has gone out to seek that particular category. So you can't, they, what can you do? You're going to have to, uh, you can't just say all black people need to pack it up and go home. So category one, where the settlers, tick, can't do anything about that. Number two, skip migration, tick, you want them here, can't do anything about that. And that leaves category three, the ones that are here on a humanitarian visa and uh, either came as refugees. That tends to be the one that's an easy target uh, because the notion that's being peddled is that they don't have, you know, Australia provided them a safe heaven, a safe passage, a safe landing from wherever they came from. But this that category, the ones who are arrive on humanitarian visas, that is actually granted on recommendation by the UNHCR. The UNHCR, the United Nations, backs the granting of those visas. And even though Australians are inclined to view such visa grants as a charitable arrangement, it is not a charitable arrangement. This is a more accurate view is that Australia, like its Western counterparts, has an international obligation to resettle refugees. And so if Australia were to send anyone back to the atrocities that they fled from, this would count as an action complicit to state-sponsored murder. And so the idea of go back to where you came from or send them back to where, that is just dead in its tracks. It doesn't work. But it's really nice to interrogate it to see when people say go back to where you came What do you mean by that? What do they mean by that? It's, it's nice to indulge them a little bit. Just take them down that path and see what, that, what their options are when they go down that path. There's nothing there to see. If when people talk about Africans, they have this sort of blanket rule or blanket sort of... There's categories. So there's the black ones that came here on skilled visas. Mm. And then there's the... Um, the humanitarian the humanitarian. Entrance. The interesting part is that the bucket of the humanitarian visa... Mm is at least for my conversations is never been seen as if they had something going back home yeah that they were they had a place exactly mm. they're seen as if they were dogs back 
there and the, someone threw them a bone and now mm. they're complaining about the bone. Mm. Um, but from the conversations I've had with you, even um, the things I know about Stephen, um, is that you guys were doing very well back home. Mm, absolutely. Um, which even you just expressed that you want to go back home. I'm sure it bothers you, but how do you navigate that? You're in a room, you walk into work and, and you're in a room and someone might just or, or of a sudden think. Mm. That uh, I've, I've got. Yeah, this, you kept, oh, oh, we're talking about refugees? Oh, um, I'll show you this um, a pony right here, a refugee. We've, came, we've they, they, had they this, I have a friend who was born here. Palestinian, and every time she says she's Palestinian, same thing happens to her. As if you've got nothing, right? Nothing. Do you know I've learned a, a very good skill nowadays? You mm. know, is discernment. You know, of those who I have time to educate, mm. and those who may the Lord save you, because <laughs> not me and not today. I don't have the energy, and you cannot be saved anyway. And so I will act as though you do not exist in the room. You're not in my space. I don't even give them the space. They go, oh, you know. Those are the same people who come to you when they watch Roots. And then the next day they come and tell you, oh, I'm really sorry. What does it have to do with me? Kunta Kinte, what does Kunta Kinte have to do with me? You understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. I can't help that person. Right. I can, but someone who genuinely wants to have a conversation, yeah. someone who genuinely wants to know, mm. I'm happy to sit down with you yeah. and go, this was our life before mm. and this is our life now. Mm. You know, And then I can tell them, we own an apartment in Nairobi which we can go in and out right. as we please. Yeah. Actually, all of us have a home yeah. at home. Not one person that I know does not have a home at home. We all have, even if it's a five by five or whatever the size of this room is, mm -hmm. we have that in our village somewhere. Mm -hmm. Everybody has that. You have somewhere to go that you can actually call home and are people who will accept you. So, so let it just be known. So it's not charity. It ain't charity. It ain't charity. And, it, and it's, it's not because we want to be here, you know. We, a lot of the people, you know, all want to be here. No, they're here because of their children. They're here because of the opportunity that there is and because, you know, it was unsafe mm. once upon a time. Right. Unsafe, now we've got children, let's do it for the children. After that, people go, mm. you know. No, but I will. I definitely will. Um, I myself. I oh, just want to finish my PhD. Mm. Finish my PhD and, um, yeah, go home. Go home. Yeah. Lecture in one of the universities there. And, yeah. Give me what your, um, um, just applying maybe everything that we talked about to how that courses through the veins of your parenting right now? I am a, <laughs> one thing that I never thought I'd be is, I am fearful of ruining their lives. 
Yeah. So I parent. Um, <laughs> I I I have a medium sized leash. Mm, all right. <laughs> not a long leash. Yeah. Not Me, a short one. Yeah. I'm right in the middle. Yeah. You know. My kids can express themselves in any way they want to express in any way they want to express themselves, you know. Um and like my what my father used to do, you know, I'm also Friday, Saturday, no rules. Sleep whatever time you want to sleep. <laughs> yeah. You wanna watch telly till twelve, go for it, go for it. You know, do any of that. Whatever you want to try out, let's try it. Mm. Um and I, tr- I I try and travel with them as much as I can. My daughter's first birthday. I, said, we, we, I took her to Shanghai. I said, well, we spent first birthday. Roman was in Fiji. Right. You know, so I will try and, you know, do mm. as acculturate them mm. so that they can do that. I feel I need to take them back home for at least five years mm. and ground them, you know, because uh, I can see the value in that grounding. Mm. Um, uh, at the moment, all they can see is difference. However, at home, I want them to see a yeah. sea, a sea of sameness, yeah. and oneness, so that yeah. they know uh, I belong. Oh, yeah. So this is who are yeah. my people. Yeah. You know, a good five to ten years will be will, All right. will be a good foundation yeah. for them. Yeah. My uh, siblings that have their own kids uh, tend to use that as a tend to use that as a threat. threat? Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm actually going to use it as a positive. It's not going to be a threat, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do it at a young age. I'm not going to let them. We see these as, as a threat to teenagers and stuff, perhaps, mm, isn't mm, it? Mm. No. Eleven-year-olds. Uh, Even eleven. Yeah, because eleven, you uh, you know, he's not. He's talking back to me. He's oh. Yeah. So I now I've got to do it before eleven. So while she waits to acculturate her kids by sending them to Africa for five years, for now, culture and sameness at the Fed Square will have to suffice. And one of those cultural highlights at the Fed Square are the drums. That's next time on Nice Black Aussies. Nice Black Aussies is produced by myself and recorded at the studios of the State Library of Victoria. Music used is that of Brianna Tam, Geoffrey Oriema, Rob Cawley, Les Wanyika, Kanda Bongoman, and a full list of the credits can be found within the show notes. <laughs>